is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, how's everybody doing today? Welcome to Killer Innovations, where we talk about ideas, creativity, and innovations. And where we also introduce you to top innovators who share with their story so that you can take your ideas and change the world. And I'm going to give you a heads up. You will not want to miss our guest today. If you're listening live, join in by tweeting your questions and comments using the hashtag KILive. Now, have you ever felt like you did something that others said couldn't be done? Now, for me, there's no better feeling. Walt Disney said it best when he says, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. For me, if you remember a couple weeks back, I talked about corporate antibodies, or sometimes I refer to them as innovation antibodies. And these are the people who tell you why you cannot do an idea. And one of the antibodies we discussed was someone called legal or regulatory as a reason you couldn't do something. Oh, you can't do that because it's, it's against the law or it's not allowed. Um, and it's very frustrating when those get thrown at you, typically by lawyers. Um, but I'm proof that you can actually win that battle. Uh, back when I was part of the original management team starting a company called Telligent, it was a telecom company back in the late 90s, we were a very small team. And we came up with what we thought was a great idea. And this was the very first online real-time billing and payment system. Now, t today you think about PayPal or you think about logging on and seeing your AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile bill, and you don't think anything about it. Remember, though, this is 1996. In this case, it was the very first time bills were going onto, the, onto a website, plus you could actually uh, get the names and addresses of every customer who called you during the month so you can actually create a customer database and we'd also send you the information when someone got a busy signal great for small retail outlets now as we started working on this the lawyers went crazy claiming that it was against the you know, industry regulations the the US government had laws against these things they were really focused on securing the customer information and i didn't buy it so i told the lawyers prove it and until you do, I'm building it. So months went by, and they could not find any regulation that would prevent us from launching this. Now, why is that? Why were the lawyers so convinced that there was an issue? Well, it seems that there was folklore about what is allowed and what is not allowed in government regulations. Imagine that. And no one had challenged the folklore. So we launched the offering in a service that we called Imagine, and it was a huge success. In fact, you can, and I'll put it, you know, I'll put it in the, in the show notes so you can go over and visit uh, killinnovations.com and I'll put a link out to some of the articles written about Imagine. But it was a huge success. And it felt like we had achieved the impossible, or as some people might say, we, we at least got away with it. Now, we were a very, very small team at the time. And since the beginning of time, it's been entrepreneurs that have driven the creation of innovation. True breakthroughs have been the result of either individuals or small teams who had an idea and they were determined to see it through to fruition. And they need to, and, and, and the willingness to channel the assumptions. And also, in many cases, ignoring the advice of your friends. Now, while we, en we all enjoy the fruits and the benefits of all these innovations, it is that entrepreneur slaving away either by themselves in a spare bedroom 
or within a small firm who's inventing the future. And since I'm all about innovation, let me share with you what I think are some really interesting statistics on the impact small businesses entrepreneurs can have. Now, if you go back and you look at the entire, then I'm just going to look at it from a U.S. patent perspective. But in case of U.S. issued patents, a company with 25 employees generates more patents per employee than a company with 50, which produce more patents than a company with 100. And when it comes through to breakthrough innovations, it's not about the number of patents or the number of patents per employee, but about the quality and the impact. In this case, small businesses lead again, as a disproportionate number of patents for emerging technologies are coming from the small firms, not the big multinationals. Now, while small firms are only granted about 8% of all patents in the United States these days, they receive 24% of all patents issued in the top 100 emerging technologies. Now, I want to emphasize this. I'm going to repeat that. Listen closely. While small firms are granted only 8% of all patents, they receive 24% of all patents issued in the top 100 emerging technologies. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? That patents issued to small businesses are not the broad generic ones, but are focused towards specific innovations that have the highest impact with the highest returns. So why is that? Why do these smaller firms tend to do this? Well, because in a small firm, you have to be focused on an idea. You're not trying to chase 10,000 ideas because your success is dependent on you turning one idea into a meaningful success for you to get a substantial return. And it's through that focus that small firms do an amazing job at inventing and improving and innovating and expanding the technologies, the research, the knowledge into very specific areas. So again, think about it. 8% of the patents go to small firms, but 24% of those patents into the top 100 technology areas are going to small companies. Now, the technologies most often impacted by these patents issued to small firms are an interesting kind of a list. Communications, that includes the Internet. Number two is diagnosis, surgery, medical instruments. Number three was biotech. Number four, pharmaceuticals. And number five, power systems. Uh, things like solar, things like uh, new kinds of battery technologies. And it's interesting to note that two of the top emerging technologies where large companies have a 2x lead over small companies are computer hardware and computer software. So that's the one area where big companies lead. Why? because computer hardware and computer software are fairly mature. So, it's great news, right? We think that that's really going to be the driver. Well, it can be. The challenge being is, is that it is a challenge for, in many cases, small firms in order to be successful. There's a lot of things that get in the way. Now, I could get real negative here and talk about all the hurdles, um, but, you know, I'm going to focus more on what, Particularly, governments could do to be more supportive. 
And I'm going to make this generic because 40% of the listeners to this show are from outside the U.S. So number one, create incentives for risk capital. We need to do better, make capital better available to small startup companies. Two, we need to establish incentives for small and large businesses to co-innovate together, take advantage of those small ones. Number three, encourage entrepreneurs to invest in R&D. Number four, build leverage into the innovation programs, meaning incentives to invest in areas with universities and other uh, organizations. And then five, education. We need to commit to graduating workers who are better prepared for the creative and innovation economy. We need to train the next set of workers. So here, those are just five things that uh, I think uh, businesses and and in particular, trade associations and governments from around the world should be thinking about doing. And I'll post more detail about this um, um, after the show. But here's my one suggestion, right? If you had 10 minutes with a leader in your government, what would you suggest they do to encourage small business innovation? So here's one suggestion. Send an email to your local and national government leaders with a link to this show. Maybe we can get some action and help small businesses accelerate their rate of innovation. And just imagine the impact on your economy. And if it's not you, then who? So get out there. Go ahead. Stir the pot. We need to encourage small businesses to innovate even more because that's what's going to drive economic growth. It drives career opportunities, and it helps solve some of the most pressing problems we face as society, whether it be education, health care, uh, power, um, the, the environment. We need small businesses to focus and do even more from that standpoint on the innovation cycle. So like I said, maybe take, create an email with a link to this show, send it to your local um, government officials, and let's, uh, let's get the conversation going. And, and if you've got different ideas, I'd love to hear them. Send them to me at phil at killerinnovations.com. So coming up, I'm going to introduce you to Raul Sood. If you don't know who Raul is, during the break, go Google him. Or better yet, why don't you go Bing him? And when you do that, you'll figure out why I said that. His new venture is in an area that people said couldn't be done, but he's doing it. So stay right there. You don't want to miss this. This is going to be one of those interviews that's going to give you a lot of inside baseball, but I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. So I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Have you ever ever heard that saying that you become the people you hang out with? Here's a quote from Booker T. Washington that I just absolutely love. Associate yourself with people of good quality, for it is better to be alone than a bad company. Now, 
I could be cracking a joke right about now, but the fact that you're hanging out with me right now, but uh, I'll avoid the uh, the puns. I'm Phil McKinney, and we're here to show you how to take your idea and change the world. And we do this by bringing top innovators to come into the innovator's garage and share their story. If you're listening live, just don't sit there, participate. Join us via Twitter using the hashtag KILive. We've already got a few questions coming in um, for our guests. Uh, but today's guest, he fits the Booker T. Washington quote. We came together through an acquisition. We stay connected as, we, as we've each gone off to do our own thing. Um, our guest today, Raul Sood, um, is, uh, was the founder of Voodoo. Um, he joined HP when I actually led the acquisition of his company when I was there, and I became Raul's uh, very first boss. I'm sure we'll have some great laughs and uh, stories on that one. I didn't uh, fully appreciate what I was getting myself into when I signed on to that deal. Uh, Raul went off to launch Microsoft Ventures and then left Microsoft last year to start his new venture, Unicorn. So, Raul, first question. Did I take you away from your wakeboarding today? <laughs> yes, Phil. Yes, you did. But that's okay. I thought so. I thought so. If those of you who follow Raul on Facebook, you, you get to watch some absolutely phenomenal videos. I think they're done by your son, right? Of you out wakeboarding on the weekends, which is always a, a lot of fun. Well, I, I love the crash ones, though, better, quite personally. Yeah, my kids, uh, my kids are into it as well. And yeah, they, they love, uh, you know, they love going out with me and it's, it's a, it's just a great way to spend time with them and take them away from, you know, their friends. <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> also, you can't, it's hard to use electronics on the water, right? So it's one way to get the, get the kids away from the electronics. Exactly. So let's start. Let's start from the beginning. It seems that you've always had this entrepreneurial bent. You know, you started Voodoo right out of high school, right? So why don't you well, take us back in time? What what's you're, you've, you've obviously had a long history and a long entrepreneurial kind of DNA, but let's go back to the kind of pre-Voodoo that led you into starting Voodoo. And maybe give people a little bit of background on yourself in the process. Well, Phil, uh, before we get into that, how are you doing? It's been a long time. <laughs> It has been. It's it's actually quite funny because, uh, you know, you and I have known each other for quite some time. And in fact, last week's guest, um, D.P. Vankatesh, we were laughing on the show that it took a radio show for us to finally get, get back together. And here it is with you and I in the same realm. We, we tend to do everything electronically, but it's hard with everybody's schedule to uh, get everybody into either into a room or get people on onto a phone call. But oh, things are... Things are going great. Got a new radio show, so I'm, I'm having a blast and uh, get get a chance to reach back out to my friends and uh, just have these kinds of conversations and kind of dig in on what you're up to. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, you know, I, I'll give a little bit of background on on you know how I started, but basically, um, you know, I, I have always been an entrepreneur uh, for for as long as I can remember. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I started, I started working, uh, when I was 12 years old, you know, working for my dad, he kind of forced us to, to, um, you know, to work. Um, he used to drag us out every Saturday and Sunday to his carpet store. And, um, you know, we got to see, uh, the, the dark side and the fun side of entrepreneurship growing up. And, um, <laughs> and I remember, you know, I remember thinking to myself, like watching my dad and some of the stuff that he did, you know, there, there's a lot of things that I, I would never want to do. Um, but there's a lot of things I learned from him. Um, and a lot of it had to do with work ethic and, and just doing something you absolutely love to do. So, so as you know, I, I, I loved gaming and I, and I love computers and, 
Um, and, and one thing led to another after I graduated from high school and I started this, this small company that, um, you know, was, was really just about building the, the baddest, uh, computer systems in the world. And, um, and it, it turned out to be a, a really great venture. It was a lot of fun, you know, and we, we had an amazing team. And as you know, Phil, um, you know, you, you, you came in at, at the right time and, um, you know, and we, we, we made this, this, this great deal as we were getting courted by Dell and, uh, you know, and then HP and, um, you know, you drove a, a pretty, pretty awesome acquisition for the company. So it was, it was, uh, it was some really good times back then. And, you know, I, I, I'm quite fond of the memories and, um, you know, but both the challenges of working inside a big company and also going from entrepreneur to intrapreneur inside of HP. Yeah, well, and you and I've had this conversation along with the, the the old team that, you know, it's hard for entrepreneurs when they when they go through that acquisition process to kind of be sucked into the Borg and how do you translate that into uh, into success, right? It's hard. How do you drive influence? How do you drive change? And I have to say, when you came into HP, you definitely raised the entrepreneurial bar across all of HP. Um, in fact, right after we signed the deal, if you recall, we flew back to California and you were thrown right into a meeting with Mark Hurd. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and you didn't pull any punches, and you're you know, you you weren't even an employee eight hours, and you were already in there swinging away at Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, he he was he was actually quite a fascinating leader. You know, Mark was the the guy who um, he sort of made a mountain move, uh, and within within a couple of weeks, the, the it felt like the entire HP team was you know, was coming to Calgary and meeting with us and, uh, and, 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 and driving these talks. And, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I did learn a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot. You know, I remember, I remember quite fondly some of the conversations that you and I would have about, about winning people's, you know, uh, influence and, and sort of get, gaining their respect and things like that inside of a large organization. And I, and I was always, um, the one who was getting frustrated with things and, you know, and, and sometimes the way I managed myself as an entrepreneur was, was not the right way to do it, you know? And I, and, and I only really kind of, um, picked up on that after I left HP, you know, I, I, I learned, uh, one of the big, one of the big learnings I had was that if, if you're not inside the organization, it's very difficult to affect change, right? Because you're just not part of it. And as you know, I, I didn't really move to Palo Alto or Cupertino. I stayed in Canada and, and tried to run things from the outside. And that was, that was hard. Yeah, it's always hard when you've got that remote distance trying to drive influence because it's particularly coming into an organization from of 30 employees being integrated into an organization with 120,000 employees, you know, the proverbial drop in the ocean um, problem and how do you and how do you really how do you really have that influence? But then you went on to Microsoft and had, you know, great success um, there with the whole start of the Microsoft ventures and the support and the influence of how to get Microsoft to support the entrepreneurials out there. And, and how do you really how do you really drive that? Yeah, you know when when I uh, it wasn't as easy as it as it looked from the outside. I can tell you when, when I first joined Microsoft, um, we we made the, the the decision to move from Canada to to Seattle. So we moved our family from Calgary to Seattle, and um, and that was a hard decision. You know, Microsoft was extremely. Um, how do I say? Uh, they, they were they were very flexible. You know, when it came to bringing us over, they did everything to make us comfortable. Um, such an amazing company. You know, they 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 spent a lot of money moving us there, and then helping me get my green card, and you know, and just uh, you know, taking care of the visas and the move and the whole thing. And then when I got there um, on day one, there was basically a reorg. 
Yeah, well, that's, yeah, and everything gets shifted out from underneath you. So, hey, why don't we all just sit tight? Uh, when we come back, I'm going to roll and I'll continue the conversation. I want to hear more about Unicorn and what he's going on going next. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovation. Biz Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Thanks for uh, sticking with us for this segment. Uh, We have Raul Sood, who was the founder of Voodoo, the the person who got Microsoft to launch the Microsoft Ventures programs in support of entrepreneurs, and now the co-founder and CEO for Unicorn. So, Raul, let's jump into Unicorn. What? Give us the background. What was the spark? What was the thing you saw that caused you to, to leave what? Many viewed was a great position for you at Microsoft to go off and uh, do that startup all over again. Well, so you know, when I was with Voodoo, um, we were we were on the cutting edge of of uh, gaming, and 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 at the time, esports was was called um, you know professional gaming tournaments. There was no there was no formal uh, sort of esports moniker around it. But I've always been watching the space. And um, and when when I was at Microsoft Ventures, we made an investment. Uh, we as in Microsoft made an investment in a company that um, that was effectively a way for gaming communities uh, to monetize their server traffic. Um, and and so you know the the, the non sexy description of that company was they were an ad network built on the Steam Engine that reached about two million users um, around the world. And I really liked that company. I liked what they were doing. I liked their reach. But I was also uh, super interested in what was happening in the in the esports arena. Esports was just starting to take off, and um, and it was it was kind of a, it was kind of a bunch of things happening at the same time. My, my son, who was 15 years old at the time, was was really pushing me to get back into gaming. He's always like, Dad, why don't you go start a new company in gaming? You really should look at esports. And and then I really started to pay attention, you know, when 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 you look at why the living room is dying and why kids aren't watching TV as much, what are they doing? And I started to spend time with with my kids in their world um, playing games and and uh, and just learning about the ecosystem that was esports. And um, and I realized that this this is a this is a movement that's happening beneath all of us and we don't realize it that that you know over 200 million people watch esports last year and there's just as many fans on esports as there are in the nhl so so i ended up um leaving microsoft and i and i made an offer to buy the company pinion which was that that game network uh company and we've since grown that community from 2 million users to almost 10 million users in in 100 countries worldwide and then and then you know we saw the opportunity to combine betting with uh, with video games and 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 by the way after I left after I left HP I started a, I helped start a company with some friends that combines betting with video games called Playall and we decided to acquire that company and the technology as well and the people behind it and and so we wrapped it all together and we came up with this thing called Unicorn Arena which lets people. Um, come and watch these professional gaming tournaments and bet on the outcomes of the game. And it's been just so much fun. 
So that's, yeah, well, that's it's but, it, but it's interesting from my perspective, right? We started. I started off the show talking about doing the impossible, and given all of the government and legal and regulatory challenges to do online gaming, you you've taken on kind of a, a beast that everybody else has kind of stayed away from. Are you like yeah, insane, yeah. or is this? Or are you just a glutton for punishment? <laughs> a bit of both, I guess. But you know, we we do what any entrepreneur would do. You know, in something like this, as a startup, you look for the you know the the, the best way to deliver the safest uh, experience for your customers and the best experience for your customers. And we went out and we formed a partnership with one of the largest betting companies in the world. They're they're a publicly traded company. They're a twelve billion dollar company with the with uh, who, who have been rated for nine out of the last 10 years as being the most responsible, uh, you know, most ethical wagering company in the world. And we went out and signed a global partnership with them. And they became one of our largest investors in our seed round. The company is called Tabcorp. So, so we immediately uh, killed the, the barrier to entry, which was legalities, because Tabcorp is, is providing us with global licenses for betting. And we also killed the issue of liquidity, because Tabcorp is, is uh, handling the risk after we produce the odds. So, so we, we basically focus on what we do best, which is gaming and, and producing odds. We have some amazing odds makers uh, working with us, some people that are super interested in math and science and also games. And, and we come up with these opening odds and we share them with Tabcorp. It's such an amazing relationship that we have with that company. But, you know, that's how you do it. You, you, you find ways, uh, you know, you find ways to how to take no for an answer, right? And and that's something I learned at HP. That's something I learned at Microsoft. It's not. It's not. It's not no for an I'm gonna take that as I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take that as a shot. Being I was your former boss, and I tended to be the one to say no. <laughs> well, you 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 just you, you just did what you had to do. But but you know the thing is, you also enabled us to do what we needed to do. So you gave us a lot of air cover, you know, to go do what we needed to do. But I could I could see now the headache that you had to go through dealing with me and like my brother and people around me that were, you know, like me, I could see what you had to deal with being able to balance two cultures. It was probably uh, was the reason you lost all the hair that you did when I was working for you. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, but I'll tell you though, you know, but what we did at HP and what you're doing at unicorn though, is the epitome of what it means to be an entrepreneur, right? You're going to hear, everybody's going to tell you no, right? And do you just say, okay, they told me no. And you fold up your tent and go away. Then you're not an innovator, a real innovator. Are those that they don't understand the definition of the word. No, no, just means that's not that path. I've got to find a different path, but I'm still going to get it done somehow. Exactly. And, and that was the same thing that happened at Microsoft when, when, you know, we set out to set, to create a fund for startups, setting up Microsoft ventures. I mean, the no's were, were much louder than the yeses. And, and what you needed to do was, was just demonstrate empathy, you know, come in with a very humble approach, listen to people, be empathetic as to why they're saying no, and then figure out how to turn that no into a yes. It, it, it wasn't easy. I can tell you being an entrepreneur inside a big company is the hardest thing I've ever done. I've done it twice now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to be out doing what I want to do at the speed that I'd like to do it at. So it's, uh, it's just, it's just great. Yeah. Well, and you've also, I mean, unicorns gained a lot of attention. You know, you got Mark Cuban came in in your most recent round and, uh, you know, his endorsement plus all of your current investors plus, 
the excitement. You've picked up some country, additional countries now, right? Australia just came on, right, for, for betting for you guys? Yeah, yeah. So we have Australia, we have the UK, we have Ireland, we have a number of other countries along the way. We also have a product that we're working on for the U.S. market, which will launch sometime in August um, that I can't really talk about. But we're, we, we truly are turning this into a global company very quickly. Look, seven months ago, we were hanging Christmas lights at our office in WeWork. I mean, we were just moving in. And today, you know, people, they, they obviously focus on Mark Cuban because it's Mark Cuban. But, man, we got people like Sherry Redstone, who, who runs Advanced Capital, whose father coined the phrase, content is king, Sumner Redstone. We have uh, Liz Murdoch, who runs a very exclusive fund called the, uh, the Freelance Fund. Um, you know, obviously we have Tabcorp. And then the biggest thing is we got Binary Capital. And Binary is run by two of the most uh, amazing partners in the Valley. The, these guys have invested in Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Whisper, TaskRabbit. They invested in all those companies at the sub-10 million mark. So, so they really spot uh, amazing consumer brands and, and help them grow. And then, of course, getting Mark on board was just, like, uh, just amazing. It was a, such a good deal. So, yeah, we, we, we have really come a long way since – since uh, Christmas. <laughs> well, and I can remember Christmas back, well, based uh, back in our uh, HP days, I was in Busan, Korea, and that was the first time I watched a, a real pro gaming um, event in a, in a stadium, and it was absolutely mind blowing. And to see where it's come to today, to see the market opportunity, and you know, hats off to you and, and the team for for kind of seeing seeing that uh, that path through the process and putting together their unicorn and, and attracting the investments. It's it's basically redefined kind of what people think about in esports. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see kind of where this goes and uh what happens with you so you know if you're up for it maybe in another uh you know six months or so as you continue to move down unicorn maybe have you back we could spend a little more time just talking about unicorn and where that uh where that's heading and uh really really quick if you had to pick one lesson learned as you've gone through the unicorn experience that you wanted to give to, to an entrepreneur what would be just really really quick what would be the one piece of advice you would give entrepreneurs based on what you've learned going through the unicorn experience yeah, sure. So, so look, the, yeah, I spent uh, like three years helping companies uh, build and, and grow and raise money. The one piece of advice I'd give any entrepreneur is when you are ready to bring friends and family on, don't, don't bring your friends and family to invest in your company with your hat in hand. You should be providing them an opportunity. So the right time to bring friends and family in is once you have traction and you have a strategic investor who is adding value to your business. You don't want to go and get friends and family in at the early stage uh, because that, that that is where most startups blow up. They, they, they bring people in for their money, and, and, uh, and they're not able to kind of sustain that and turn it into a viable business. So, it's, you know, raising money is an art as much as it is a science. Yeah, and I think and I think your experience at uh, Microsoft Ventures was perfect for that. So that's great advice. Um, support that 100%. Roel, thank you for your time. You can get back out there, get your wakeboarding in this afternoon before the sun goes down. I appreciate you giving me the time. Biz Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. 
So, did you finish last week's homework? Let me remind you, the homework was find five ways customers are using your product or service in a way you never considered. I did get an email from David who dropped me a note with how someone was using his product in a way he never considered. Another engineer had taken his work and used it in a way that was just totally opposite from what the original design was. And so what did David do when he found out? He documented the hack and shared it with others. The result was is that it became the most popular design hack downloaded by their customers that year. So, David, thanks for the note. And as for you, feel free to drop me a note anytime at phil at com. Questions are a mind hack. Your brain cannot stop itself from answering it. So what's the mind hack for this week? The question is, is who will not buy your product because they feel something is objectionable about it? Who will not buy your product because they feel something is objectionable about it? Something, you know, upsets them. They won't buy it because of a position. If you're inspiring enough such that some people will love what you are doing, odds are you're going to be inspiring others to dislike your product with equal passion. Now, plenty of companies take advantage of the fact that they represent something that mainstream culture will find offensive or questionable. Look at any business that sells rebellion or gritty counterculture messages, or even in our last segment talking with Raul about unicorn. In some cases, people will be object, have objections around online gambling. But if you look at it, even mainstream products, such as products that you would think of as such as tobacco or the alcohol industry, subtly sell themselves as being a little dangerous and outside the norm. And products and services actually emerge that are counter to those in some cases, such as, um, you know, investments. You can go now and you can find investment portfolios that actually will guarantee that they do not invest in something that is objectionable. So the question for you is decide whether there is any benefit or purpose to be strategically disliked. That's right. In some cases, we all want to be out there. We all want to be loved. We all want to be liked. We want our fans. But let's not ignore that there is possibly a good strategy about being strategically disliked. Or maybe, maybe a little subtle or being perceived by someone as not us. Will it benefit you and your product to deliberately sell yourself in opposition to certain social groups? And if so, how do you accomplish this? You know, do you go boldly and proudly stating what you are? And in some cases, do you antagonize the non-fans? Do you attack the, the norms? Now, this strategy can be positive if it allows you to clearly define what you are about and who you are targeting. The important thing is to carefully walk the line between creating a connection on one side and provoking rejection on the other side. But ultimately, it's about achieving what you define as success. And this strategy requires a certain amount of finesse. So remember, the whole purpose here is, is, you know, do you go with a strategy that allows you to be defined as being strategically disliked? And well, the question again is, who will not buy your product because they feel something is objectionable about it? Some additional questions when you're thinking about it, this strategy makes sense for you. Have you ever tried to market your product based on what it doesn't supply rather than what it does? Do you actually go out there and say, we do not do this, we do not do this, and we do not do this in your product versus always doing the feature list? Can you use the thing that's objectionable about your product to create a community of customers? Can you actually use it as an attractor? 
And how could you eliminate the objections, help or hurt you? If you actually do have objections, could you remove those and actually move into a whole different segment? So your assignment this week is find three ways to make your products objectionable to a segment of the market. That's right. Take your hat off. Take a different perspective. Find three ways to make your product objectionable to a segment of the market. Now, this is what I call an idea quota. Just as you go into the gym to work out your muscles, a killer question with an idea quota, in this case, three, you need to come up with three ways. Well, exercise your creative muscle, but only if you actually do something. So do it and share your homework by sending it to me at phil at killerinnovations.com. And if there's some good ones in here, I'll share it in next week's show, just as I did uh, David's. Also, don't think you only have one week. If you're listening to this as a podcast recorded after the show, go ahead, do the homework, and drop me a note. But the important thing is, go ahead, do it. You learn through practice, and here's your chance. Now, the purpose of this show, is, as we kick it off, is really to talk about ideas, innovations, and changing the world. And history has shown that we as humans have the ability to use our creativity to solve our biggest challenges and create entirely new industries and delivering products and services we just never even considered. So let's get together and change the world. How? We do this on this show by bringing leading innovators from around the world who share you their stories and how they create their own game-changing innovations. And... Now, for you, it's about learning from them so that you can change the world yourselves. You change the world by doing it, taking what you learn and tackling some really hard problems you see. Next week, our guest is Daniel Epstein from Unreasonable, an incubator and an investment fund that enables for-profit social entrepreneurs to be successful. Social entrepreneurs are those innovators going out there and creating new things, new products, new services that address a social need, but not as a charity, but do it as a for-profit. And be ready, because we will have a few of the founders from the current Unreasonable Incubator join the show and tell their story. You be ready to be inspired. Between shows, make sure you check out KillInnovations.com. The new site is coming up here, hopefully, in another couple days. Um, it's a place where you can plug into others. You can see who the upcoming guests are. You can listen to past shows. You can find the show notes, all the links we talk about here. And don't miss out on the other great shows on BizTalk Radio Network. Visit biztalkradio.com. And while you're there, grab the mobile app. It allows you to listen to the Kill Innovations show and all of the other shows live. And also, if you know an innovator whose story that others should hear, drop me a note. At Phil at KillInnovations.com. We're taking, we're looking for those really interesting stories. And for me personally, probably preferably not in tech. Looking for things in areas. We've got some very interesting guests in the finance markets coming up here in a couple of weeks. We've also got some uh, STEM education related innovation that we're going to talk about here in another couple of weeks. So if you've got, know somebody that's got a great story, a great innovation story, just drop me a note at phil at killinnovations.com. I'm Phil McKinney, and you've been listening to Kill Innovations. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 